You know, I've always found myself uh, fascinated by the people who, who just see things that I don't see. Um, have you ever known anybody who walks into a room uh, and you tell them that you don't like it and you want to change it? Uh, they sort of, uh, you can see their minds start to turn. They take a quick trip to some nearby town, to some furniture deals. They show up to your house and they tear it apart. And then all of a sudden, a couple weeks later in the end, you look at it, it looks fantastic. Don't you love the people who tend to have that kind of ability, that genius that comes to it? I know you do because I've basically described almost every single episode of the show Fixer Upper. Where does Joanna Gaines get that keen insight, right, that she has? Well, we're looking this semester at the reasons why the story of Jesus uh, was convincing to Theophilus, Luke's friend, and how these stories would bring him the certainty uh, that Jesus was who he said he was. Well, in chapters 1 through 9, Luke has primarily been concerned with talking to us about who Jesus is, his person, what he's fundamentally about. Now in chapter 10, though, begins a little bit of a new direction where Luke begins to focus on the kind of people that Jesus wants his followers to be. Um, And I can state it this way, though. Jesus is trying to get his people to have their eyes trained to see the things that the world simply doesn't see. And the central feature of this sort of sight change in Jesus' followers has to do with the way they look at the poor the way they see the marginalized around them, the way they understand brokenness in their own life and in the life around them. Jesus' parable is famous, there's no doubt, but rarely do we feel the full weight of what he's really trying to say. And I think there's a reason for it. It's because it's uncomfortable. You really can't go and look at the broken and the dispossessed around us without feeling vulnerable yourself. It puts us at risk to look through those people. And as it turns out, I think that's actually precisely Jesus' point. Um, But when it's all said and done, I think that Luke assumes that the kind of radical service that Jesus demands from his followers was going to serve as its own apologetic for those who might uh, question what it was that Jesus was about. Um, So look, in the interest of full disclosure, it was somewhere back in the late 90s, I first heard Tim Keller do a sermon on this very passage And I need you to know, for integrity's sake, that I'm borrowing heavily from that outline uh, because it made a very deep impression on me. So we'll see how it goes. Um, But I want to look at three points this morning. I want to look at the what, the why, and the how uh, of what Jesus wants from us. What does he want from us? Why does he want that? And how are we supposed to pull that off? Well, the first thing is, what is it that Jesus wants from us? Well, when you listen to this story, I think, from the ears of those who first heard it, I think you'll realize that it's a story that packs a pretty serious punch because the lawyer was an expert in religious law and the guy was asked a question that he would have known about or at least that he should have known about. And so what he does is when God, Jesus looks at him and says, what does the law say? He answers the question rightly. But something happens when Jesus begins to help him realize what his answer means, <laughs> In other words, it's not until he has the answer kind of fed back to him that he really gets what Jesus is saying to him. Because think about what Jesus is saying. He's like, eternal life, that's what you're looking for? Fine. Simply make sure that everything you do, everything you say, uh, and everything that you um, think is always done in reference to a life-consuming love for God. And 
On top of that, make sure that you meet all of the needs of your neighbor with the same joy, speed, power, and force that you do for your own needs. Do that, Jesus says, and you will live. (laughs) You see what Jesus' strategy is? Because it's brilliant. Um, You might be able, you know, in a deluded moment, uh, to think that you're doing okay with the few laws that you remember God told you to follow that particular day. But when you see the full force of what that law is getting at, you're going to realize that there really is no way to keep that standard. There's no way. So why would Jesus push this man this way? Well, Michael Wilcock, my favorite um, commentator on Luke, says this. He says, His demands push you along to realize that Jesus could never intend for someone to keep the law as a way to life, only keeping the law as a way of life. You see the difference? Jesus' words are pushing this man to his own extreme in order to extract humility out of him, which as it turns out is precisely the precondition that you need to produce love for God and for neighbor. Um, Jesus is trying to get the lawyer to see, you know the law, but you just haven't taken it seriously enough. I think Jesus is enjoying the moment of irony, as he says to him. At least his strategy seems to work because that's what the lawyer says. It opens up with his response by saying, um, and wanting to justify himself, he asks his famous question. Oh, well, who is my neighbor? You know, Jesus, hmm, let's see if we can't whittle this down a little bit, make it a little more manageable and doable. So um, what's the least that I have to do in order to achieve eternal life? What's the base note here? And Jesus' response is the famous story of the Good Samaritan. But before we dive into that, I want you to pause for a moment to think about the weight of this question. You know, because the lawyer's question is about as foundational a question that a human being could ask. You know, how am I a Christian? Like, what does it mean for me to inherit eternal life? What is necessary for me to live forever, to have any hope in life? And Jesus' response to that question is a story about a man who met all of the emotional, financial, physical, uh, transportation needs of someone who is dying in a street. Look, the point is this. Jesus is saying that the most obvious way in which you will know, that you will have confidence, that you are in possession of the hope that He is bringing you, is that you begin to feel an urge on the inside to meet the needs of a group of people that Keller calls the quartet of the vulnerable. Keller says in Scripture you see four classes of people. You see the poor, you see the widow, you see the orphan, and you see the immigrant. In the faces of all those people, Jesus is saying, it is basic, fundamental to Christian living to have an eye towards relief, towards advocacy, towards helping, towards bringing about justice for those who can't get it. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And even to push it further, actually, Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 will say that the terms on which God will judge all humanity at the end of time will be based upon our service to the needy around us. Look, let me put it this way. The primary work of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
to make us holy people often is less to do with the acts of piety that we so often associate with the holy life. Reading our Bible, praying, going to church, church attendance, right? And much more to do with the posture that we've taken, the eye that we have developed towards those that are hurting in the world. It's fundamental. You know, just like an artist kind of looks at a canvas and sees a work of art there that that I could never see before he starts to paint, Just like Bill Dabney and Trip Ferris look through the lens of a camera and see framings that the average person would never see behind that eye, a Christian looks out over the world and they see things that no one else sees. They see the vulnerable, the things that the world looks and doesn't want to look at, to see the ones that the world are overlooking, and then to set the trajectory of one's life about the task of meeting those needs. Look, I want to walk you through this because I really do think that if you're anything like me, you're trying very hard to get out from under this because it's difficult. I'm just like the lawyer. There's a powerful instinct inside of me to give myself amazing amounts of credit when I do even the slightest acts to people who I like and I'm already connected with. You'd be amazed at how magnanimous I can be on the inside when I do something of service to my friends and family. But, you know, Jesus is actually talking about going and serving Samaritans, which may mean nothing to you, but it might help you to know that that in the Old Testament, we find that the Jewish people uh, actually encountered a civil war that divided the nation. You know this? Between the north and the south? Well, the northern particular portion of the nation was invaded by a foreign army, the Assyrians, who dragged huge chunks of the population away into slavery. Well, there were those, though, that remained back in the place and sort of cooperated with the invading army, Uh, and began to intermarry with them and produced what the Jewish people thought were half-breeds. Half-breeds at best, sellouts at worst. Uh, Think of, you know, uh, Muslims and and Serbs in Croatia or uh, 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 Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland or rival gangs in South Central L.A. They hated these people, could not stand these people. And Jesus' call (laughs) is that the people you are called to serve, these people, those are your neighbors. That's your neighbor. Serve those people. Keller went on to mention something that really kind of cut at me about how often we try to get out of these things by saying things like, well, well, let's be honest. I mean, those people, they brought this on themselves. I mean, they got all their wounds that they're experiencing. I mean, they're self-inflicted. And you've got to be careful about that because you want to say, do you really want to limit your provision to those who are hurting for people on the basis of whether or not they got there of their own accord? I mean, be really careful about those statements because the New Testament is kind of packed with these statements where it says that we will be judged by God by the same measure that we level against others. What if Jesus decided only to come to save those people who had not brought their sin and misery on themselves? Wouldn't have bothered with the trip, now would he have? But the truth be told, the parable of the Good Samaritan puts a vision of helping that I think is radical. I mean, the the path that was there between Jericho, uh, Jericho and Jerusalem was known to be dangerous. The Levite and the priest would have put themselves in danger had they stopped. The Samaritan was in a tight spot, a bad place to be. And yet Galatians 6, 2 tells us to bear one another's burdens... 
Well, if we're waiting to bear people's burdens when it's not inconvenient for us, then is it then a burden? (laughs) How can something be a burden if it's not something that's difficult for us? Jesus is giving us something that is radical. Now, look, for a moment here, before I move on, I want to try to save myself some emails and phone calls this week if I can. Uh, By mentioning whatever happens whenever we start to teach on things like this and whenever I've taught it in the past, that there tend to be a group of people that are sort of launched into a state of panic. And they tend to be those people for whom their schedules um, are already uh, living under deep time constraints. And I want to be very specific about a group, and it's this group right here. Young mommies of preschool age children, you do not have the time nor the energy to drop all that you're doing and serve three times a week in a soup kitchen. Okay, Can I, for whatever reason, that's the category that ends up getting the most frantic about these kinds of things. But the Christian life is not necessarily pushing every Christian to quit their jobs and all become social workers. That's not what Jesus is saying. But I think we oftentimes realize, or we don't realize, that the story of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan shows us that there's all kinds of ways in which we show mercy when we see the vulnerable around us. I came across a blog post by a guy named Matt Perlman who said there are four different kinds of mercy that you see in the Good Samaritan story. He says, number one, there is advocacy. Number two, there is assistance. Number three, there's finances. And number four, there's spiritual things. And what he says is, he says, the last three of those are fairly natural. You know, I kind of know what assistance is. That's to come alongside someone. I, I know financially what the poor need from me. And then finally, the encouragement that comes spiritually is what I'm supposed to give as well. But it's that first one, he says, that's often overlooked. Advocacy. We advocate for someone when we take up their cause, when we defend them, when we support them, when we be on their side. Advocacy in that sense is different from encouragement because encouragement is something that is done to a person who is hurting, building them up, strengthening them with words. But advocacy is something that you do for them in relation to others. And the funny thing about advocacy, the great thing about advocacy is, is nobody is too busy to advocate. I can always simply posture myself and begin to sort of look at the frame of my life in terms of saying, what does it mean for me to be on the side of the people for whom Jesus was on the side of? So rather than throwing into a panic, wondering how I can fit one more thing in my life that I really don't want to do in the first place, begin simply thinking through what it might look like to be on the side of those who are unjustly accused, for those who are the broken poor, for those who are the lonely disenfranchised. Which brings me to the second question. Why would Jesus ask that? Because if the blood is not draining from your head, it's probably because you're not listening at this point. This is some radical teaching. Um, But Keller goes on to mention that the reason why Jesus' vision is so radical is because we live in a world of radical evil. You know, you have, you have about 30 years, at least in my experience, of Republicans telling us that we're going to fix the world's problems by just getting the right man in the White House, uh, by a return to family values. And on the other hand, you have the Democrats who are telling us that if we could simply get better public education or, or universal health care for people, that we'll make the world a better place. But, you know, in the last couple of decades, it seems like the artists of the world are the ones, especially the ones who produce popular art, are kind of crying foul. And I'm going to use an example. Bear with me. Um, the advent of the horror flick. Am I the only person who noticed that like every other commercial on television is a scary movie that's come out? 
It turns out that 2017 was a record year for horror movies. $733 million were made in ticket sales to horror flicks. Now look, it's very easy at this time in your life to be like, yes, teenagers will spend all kinds of my money now, won't they? And you're probably right about that. But I do think that in popular culture, I think you'll notice that it's almost as if the filmmakers are saying something about evil. Because they're saying, your superficial fixes are not going to fix anything. Because you know what I think? I think evil is right nearby. It's in your basement. It's in the woods out back. And you know what? It's inevitable. Radical evil. And, And here's the worst of it. According to the Bible... I am its chief promoter. With every daily choice I make, I either push the world towards healing or to chaos because I'm complicit with the evil in the world. This was brought home very vividly to me a number of years ago. Ginger and I were living in Memphis prior to coming to Oxford. And I was faced with what I think is a universal conundrum that human beings face. And that is, when you go to the bank with your deposit. And you have to drive through the drive-thru. And there's two lanes in the drive-thru. Um, what do you do when you get there and there's a car in both lanes? You have no idea who got there first, right? This is a huge human problem. I mean, it's great amounts of suffering that the world experiences because of this, right? So after months of sort of pondering this thing, I came up with really a painstakingly researched conclusion. And that is if you pull up to the teller window and kind of like sit in the middle until one of the other goes first, you can be guaranteed of getting the next in turn. So um, there I was there in the middle of this thing uh, with this genius solution, and I'm there parked in the middle of the two sort of cars. And I look behind me, and there's a small little pickup with a woman in there who is clearly not happy that I've not chosen a lane. Um, So so irritated, she kind of whips around me and kind of wedges herself in so she can get the right-hand lane. Well, I'm forced to go over to the left, and you know what happens. She got to go first. So, you know, um, she obviously didn't see the brilliance of my solution. And I felt it was my job uh, to sort of help her along with the public trust that she had sort of uh, 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 broken at this moment. And so I decided to correct her and her mistake. So I pulled up into my particular lane while she was already there, and I rolled down my passenger side window um, so I could draw attention to her in this so that she could correct this um, injustice that had been committed against me, right? Um, that was a nice move you pulled back there, is really all I remember saying. Because once it had left my mouth, it was as if the woman exploded before my very eyes. Um, y'all have watched um, a, a Christmas story, that famous thing where, where little Ralphie talks about his father's rages he would go into. Uh, and, and he said, you know, in the heat of battle, my father wove a tapestry of obscenities Uh, that we know, as far as we know, is still hanging somewhere in space over Lake Michigan today. Um, Y'all, that was nothing compared to what this woman said to me in the line of this this teller thing. And I remember being so ashamed and so embarrassed that I literally just kind of raised the window back up as she was talking, you know. And I did my business and I pulled out. And I remember pulling out of the bag that day and thinking to myself, you know something less in just dripping sarcasm? Way to go. You made the world a better place today, now didn't you? (laughs) Because it occurred to me that I needed to multiply that incident by a billion. How many times a day are people making the tiniest of choices to make the world miserable for someone else? 
It's not just little things. You know, I, I imagine somewhere in Afghanistan this morning, there is a child who loses a family member to a stray missile attack and spends the next decade boiling on the inside versus what he perceives to be the West. Now multiply that times a million. And it's even around us. You know, a number of years ago, I had a conversation with a young lady who had gotten arrested for shoplifting. Shoplifting. And as we met and talked, she talked about the fact that in the year prior, her parents had gotten a divorce and they were experiencing severe financial woes. And her mother was working like four or five different jobs. And I remember her looking at me saying, you know, I just... I just don't ever seem to have any money with me. That's why the temptation was there. I remember thinking, that changes a little bit of my impression of what it was like to see her get piled into the back of a police car with handcuffs on, wouldn't it? Hmm. Look, Jesus is saying, getting rid of evil in our world is neither a Republican nor a Democratic job, but Romans 12 says, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil. Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is to raise up an army of people, one person at a time, who refuse to let anything fester in their souls that would make them demand a payment for things that were committed against them. Yes, of course, there are all kinds of public injustices that are done where you need to pay a debt to society, but that's society. Individually, we don't live on a basis of retribution. We live on a basis of absorption where I say, I'm going to take that offense inside of me and it's going to stop here. Which brings me to the last point. How in the world are we supposed to do that? How do you absorb the offenses that are committed against us that frustrate me so bad from people that are my enemies? This is where I thought the real genius was in Keller's sort of thing. He says, the power of this parable is noticing where it is that Jesus places the lawyer in the story. Think of it this way. What if Jesus had told the story like this? There was a man who was going down a road, down a dangerous road, and he looked over on the side and he saw a Samaritan who was wounded on the side of the road, and yet he stopped and he took care of all of his needs, tended to them, and then went on away. You go and do likewise. What do you think would have been the man's reaction to that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't you realize who that is? I mean, he brought it on himself anyway. Do you know who those people are? In other words, it just would have become this big, moralistic sort of hammer to kind of beat people with. No, 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 no. What Jesus does, though, is he places the Israelite in the road and the Samaritan up on the saddle as he's passing by. It's genius. And it's key because what he's saying to him is, what if you were the one in the road? What if your life was the one that was ebbing out? What if your only hope was an act of free grace towards you from an enemy, no less, who doesn't owe you a thing, but actually owes you the opposite. Jesus is saying, you're never going to be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. In other words, you're never going to be able to give this kind of grace until you have this kind of grace. <laughs> it's, it's almost like Jesus turns the question around. You know, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus looks at him and says, no, the question is, who was a neighbor to you? The gospel says that Jesus came onto the road. He put himself in danger. He did what he did at the greatest cost to himself. And we owe him everything. When he came to our place on the road, he had compassion on us. And so Jesus intends for us to see an enemy of ours 
serving us. Don't you see? The weight of Jesus' teaching, it leaves you crushed and broken when you're ashamed of the way in which we've dealt with the issue. And the hard part is, is God is the one who's part of the problem. It's His standard in the first place that brought me to a place of moral despair. But what if the source of your problem is also the source of your solution? That's the question. What if my enemy can be my Savior? Wouldn't that change the way that I looked at all of my enemies? Wouldn't it show me that the only true effective way to rid the world of the persistent evil around us is to absorb those offenses like that enemy did? How? Because he absorbed the only offense that really matters. My offense before God. I want to close with this illustration. I'm guessing quite a few of you actually have read or saw the movie Same Kind of Different as Me. You familiar with this? It's a true story about a man in Texas who, lived his, who had his life um, renovated by a friendship with a homeless man uh, that he had met at a, at a homeless mission that his wife dragged him to one day so they could serve together. And the story really is almost exactly what we talked about, how this man began to see very differently uh, this uh, homeless person in his life uh, by, by seeing him as not being unlike him, same kind of different as me. Well, my favorite passage is when the first time they actually go to the homeless mission for the first time and what the wife sort of prepares him for, the passage goes like this. He says, I had pulled into the parking lot wondering how quickly I'd be able to pull out again. But my wife suddenly spoke in that tone that you learn to recognize when you've loved someone for years, a tone that says, I need you to hear me on this. (laughs) You know that tone? Ron, before we go in, I want to tell you something, she, she said. She leaned back against her headrest and closed her eyes. She says, I picture this place so differently than it is now. White flower boxes lining the streets, maybe trees and yellow flowers, lots of yellow flowers, just like the pastures at Rocky Top in June. Deborah opened her eyes and turned to me with an expectant smile. Can't you just see that? No vagrants, no trash in the gutters, just a beautiful place where these people can know God loves them as much as He loves the people on the other side of the train tracks. See what's happened to her? She got the sight. She started seeing differently. But Jesus' point is, you can't get the sight until you've been seen. You don't have grace inside until you've had grace shown to you. The bitterness that's eroding our soul, that's what's wrong with the world. And no one is saying that the problems of the world are easy to solve. But we are saying that the only question we have is, have I gotten the view of the world that His cross gave to me? Because if I have, nothing else can really be the same, can it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you grant us that by your Spirit? Even as we come to your table this morning, would you remind us, would you help us to see more clearly the view of the world that you have, to see people around us that you see, and that we might be those people that do whatever they can, that spend their dying breath giving in the way in which you would have us to give, in whatever capacity it is, to help draw your people in. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.